Section two of Tales of Unrest Chapter two of Corain A Memory This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Ju Tales of Unrest by Joseph Conrad Karain A Memory Chapter Two But it was at night that he talked openly, forgetting the exactions of his stage. In the daytime there were affairs to be discussed in state. There were at first between him and me his own splendour, my shabby suspicions, and the scenic landscape that intruded upon the reality of our lives by its motionless fantasy of outline and colour. His followers thronged round him. Above his head the broad blades of their spears made a spiked halo of iron points, and they hedged him from humanity by the shimmer of silks, the gleam of weapons, the excited and respectful hum of eager voices. Before sunset he would take leave with ceremony and go off sitting under a red umbrella and escorted by a score of boats. All the paddles flashed and struck together with a mighty splash that reverberated loudly in the monumental amphitheatre of hills. A broad stream of dazzling foam trailed behind the fertilla. The canoes appeared very black on the white hiss of water. Turbaned heads swayed back and forth. A multitude of arms in crimson and yellow rose and fell with one movement. The spearmen, upright in the bows of canoes, had variegated sarongs and gleaming shoulders like bronze statues. The muttered strophes of the paddler's song ended periodically in a plaintive shout. They diminished in the distance. The song ceased. They swarmed on the beach in the long shadows of the western hills. The sunlight lingered on the purple crests, and we could see him leading the way to his stockade, a burly, bare-headed figure, walking far in advance of a straggling cortege, and swinging regularly an ebony staff taller than himself. The darkness deepened fast. Torches gleamed fitfully, passing behind bushes. A long hail or two trailed in the silence of the evening, and at last the night stretched its smooth veil over the shore, the lights and the voices. Then, just as we were thinking of repose, the watchman of the schooner would hail a splash of paddles away in the starlit gloom of the bay. A voice would respond in cautious tones, and our sarang putting his head down the open skylight, would inform us without surprise, that Raja, he coming. He here now. Karain appeared noiselessly in the doorway of the little cabin. He was simplicity itself then, all in white, muffled about his head, for arms only a crease with a plain buffalo horn handle, which he would politely conceal within a fold of his sarong before stepping over the threshold. The old sword-bearer's face, the worn-out and mournful face so covered with wrinkles that it seemed to look out through the meshes of a fine dark net, 
could be seen close above his shoulders. Karain never moved without that attendant, who stood or squatted close at his back. He had a dislike of an open space behind him. It was more than a dislike. It resembled fear, a nervous preoccupation of what went on where he could not see. This, in view of the evident and fierce loyalty that surrounded him, was inexplicable. He was there alone in the midst of devoted men. He was safe from neighbourly ambushes, from fraternal ambitions, and yet more than one of our visitors had assured us that their ruler could not bear to be alone. They said, even when he eats and sleeps, there is always one on the watch near him who has strength and weapons. There was indeed always one near him, though our informants had no conception of that watcher's strength and weapons, which were both shadowy and terrible. We knew, but only later on, when we heard the story. Meantime, we noticed that, even during the most important interviews, Karain would often give a start and interrupting his discourse, would sweep his arm back with a sudden movement to feel whether the old fellow was there. The old fellow, impenetrable and weary, was always there. He shared his food, his repose and his thoughts. He knew his plans, guarded his secrets, and impassive behind his master's agitation, without stirring the least bit, murmured above his head in a soothing tone some words difficult to catch. It was only on board the schooner, when surrounded by white faces, by unfamiliar sights and sounds, that Karain seemed to forget the strange obsession that wound like a black thread through the gorgeous pomp of his public life. At night we treated him in a free and easy manner, which just stopped short of slapping him on the back for there are liberties one must not take with a Malay. He said himself that on such occasions he was only a private gentleman, coming to see other gentlemen whom he supposed as well-born as himself. I fancy that to the last he believed us to be emissaries of government, darkly official persons furthering by our illegal traffic some dark scheme of high statecraft. Our denials and protestations were unavailing. He only smiled with discreet politeness, and inquired about the Queen. Every visit began with that inquiry. He was insatiable of details. He was fascinated by the holder of a sceptre, the shadow of which, stretching from the westward over the earth and over the seas, passed far beyond his own hand's breadth of conquered land. He multiplied questions. He could never know enough of the monarch of whom he spoke with wonder and chivalrous respect, with a kind of affectionate awe. Afterwards, when we had learned that he was the son of a woman who had many years ago ruled a small Bugis state, we came to suspect that the memory of his mother, of whom he spoke with enthusiasm, mingled somehow in his mind with the image he tried to form for himself of the far-off queen, whom he called great, invincible, pious and fortunate. We had to invent details at last to satisfy his craving curiosity, and our loyalty must be pardoned, for we tried to make them fit for his august and resplendent ideal. We talked. The night slipped over us, over the still schooner, 
over the sleeping land, and over the sleepless sea that thundered amongst the reefs outside the bay. His paddlers, two trustworthy men, slept in the canoe at the foot of our side-ladder. The old confidant, relieved from duty, dozed on his heels, with his back against the companion doorway, and Karain sat squarely in the ship's wooden armchair under the slight sway of the cabin lamp, a cheroot between his dark fingers and a glass of lemonade before him. He was amused by the fizz of the thing, but after a sip or two would let it go flat, and with a courteous wave of his hand asked for a fresh bottle. He decimated our slender stock, but we did not begrudge it to him, for when he began he talked well. He must have been a great Bugis dandy in his time, for even then, and when we knew him he was no longer young, his splendour was spotlessly neat, and he dyed his hair a light shade of brown. The quiet dignity of his bearing transformed the dim-lit cuddy of the schooner into an audience hall. He talked of inter-island politics with an ironic and melancholy shrewdness. He had travelled much, suffered not a little, intrigued, fought. He knew native courts, European settlements, the forests, the sea, and, as he said himself, had spoken in his time to many great men. He liked to talk with me because I had known some of these men. He seemed to think that I could understand him, and with a fine confidence assumed that I at least could appreciate how much greater he was himself. But he preferred to talk of his native country, a small Buja state on the island of Celebes. I had visited it some time before, and he asked eagerly for news. As men's names came up in conversation, he would say, We swam against one another when we were boys, or We hunted the deer together. He could use the noose and the spear as well as I. Now and then his big dreamy eyes would roll restlessly. He frowned or smiled, or he would become pensive, and staring in silence would nod slightly for a time at some regretted vision of the past. His mother had been the ruler of a small semi-independent state on the sea-coast at the head of the Gulf of Boney. He spoke of her with pride. She had been a woman resolute in affairs of state, and of her own heart. After the death of her first husband, undismayed by the turbulent opposition of the chiefs, she married a rich trader, a Corinchy man of no family. Corain was her son by that second marriage, but his unfortunate descent had apparently nothing to do with his exile. He said nothing as to its cause, though once he let slip with a sigh, oh, My land will not feel any more the weight of my body. But he related willingly the story of his wanderings, and told us all about the conquest of the bay. Alluding to the people beyond the hills, he would murmur gently with a careless wave of the hand, They came over the hills once to fight us, but those who got away never came again. He thought for a while, smiling to himself. Very few got away, he added with proud serenity. He cherished the recollections of his successors. He had an exulting eagerness for endeavour when he talked. His aspect was warlike, chivalrous, and uplifting. No wonder his people admired him. We saw him once walking in daylight amongst the houses of the settlement. 
At the doors of huts groups of women turned to look after him, warbling softly and with gleaming eyes. Armed men stood out of the way, submissive and erect. Others approached from the side, bending their backs to address him humbly. An old woman stretched out a draped lean arm. "'Blessings on thy head!' she cried from a dark doorway. A fiery-eyed man showed above the low fence of a plantain patch, a streaming face, a bare breast, scarred in two places, and bellowed out pantingly after him, "'God give victory to our master!' Karain walked fast, and with firm long strides, he answered greetings right and left by quick piercing glances. Children ran forward between the houses, peeped fearfully round corners. Young boys kept up with him, gliding between bushes, their eyes gleamed through the dark leaves. The old sword-bearer, shouldering the silver scabbard, shuffled hastily at his heels with bowed head and his eyes on the ground, and in the midst of a great stir they passed swift and absorbed, like two men hurrying through a great solitude. In his council hall he was surrounded by the gravity of armed chiefs, while two long rows of old headmen, dressed in cotton stuff, squatted on their heels, with idle arms hanging over their knees. Under the thatch roof, supported by smooth columns, of which each one had cost the life of a straight-stemmed young palm, the scent of flowering hedges drifted in warm waves. The sun was sinking. In the open courtyard suppliants walked through the gate, raising, when yet far off, their joined hands above bowed heads, and bending low in the bright stream of sunlight. Young girls, with flowers in their laps, sat under the wide-spreading boughs of a big tree. The blue smoke of wood-fire spread in a thin mist above the high-pitched roofs of houses that had glistening walls of woven reeds, and all round them rough wooden pillars under the sloping eaves. He dispensed justice in the shade. From a high seat he gave orders, advice, reproof. Now and then the hum of approbation rose louder, and idle spearmen that lounged listlessly against the posts looking at the girls would turn their heads slowly. To no man had been given the shelter of so much respect, confidence, and awe. Yet at times he would lean forward and appear to listen as to a far-off note of discord, as if expecting to hear some faint voice, the sound of light footsteps. Or he would start half up in his seat, as though he had been familiarly touched on the shoulder. He glanced back with apprehension. His aged follower whispered inaudibly at his ear. The chiefs turned their eyes away in silence, for the old wizard, the man who could command ghosts and send evil spirits against enemies, were speaking low to their ruler. Around the short stillness of the open place the trees rustled faintly. The soft laughter of girls playing with the flowers rose in clear bursts of joyous sound. At the end of upright spear-shafts the long tufts of dyed horsehair waved crimson and filmy in the gust of wind. And beyond the blaze of hedges the brook of limpid quick water ran invisible and loud under the drooping grass of the bank, with a great murmur, passionate and gentle. After sunset, far across the fields and over the bay, clusters of torches could be seen burning under the high roofs of the council shed. Smoky red flames swayed on high poles, 
and the fiery blaze flickered over faces, clung to the smooth trunks of palm-trees, kindled bright sparks on the rims of metal dishes standing on fine floor-mats. That obscure adventurer feasted like a king. Small groups of men crouched in tight circles round the wooden platters. Brown hands hovered over snowy heaps of rice. Sitting upon a rough couch, apart from the others, he leaned on his elbow with inclined head, and near him a youth improvised in a high tone a song that celebrated his valour and wisdom. The singer rocked himself to and fro, rolling frenzied eyes. Old women hobbled about with dishes, and men, squatting low, lifted their heads to listen gravely without ceasing to eat. The song of triumph vibrated in the night, and the stanzas rolled out mournful and fiery, like the thoughts of a hermit. He silenced it with a sign. Enough! An owl hooted far away, exulting in the delight of deep gloom in dense foliage. Overhead lizards ran in the atap thatch, calling softly. The dry leaves of the roof rustled. The rumour of mingled voices grew louder suddenly. After a circular and startled glance, as of a man waking up abruptly to the sense of danger, he would throw himself back, and under the downward gaze of an old sorcerer take up, wide-eyed, the slender thread of his dream. They watched his moods, the swelling rumour of animated talk subsided like a wave on a sloping beach. The chief is pensive, and above the spreading whisper of lowered voices only a little rattle of weapons would be heard, a single louder word, distinct and alone, or the grave ring of a big brass tray. End of chapter 2 of Corain A Memory